Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Greece and Rome. Chapter 54. The Wrath of Venus. In this chapter, we will enjoy three more tales from the pens of Roman writers. The first is a retelling of a Greek myth, and the last two are purely Roman inventions. In a kingdom far away, the population were neglecting their worship of Venus. This did not make the goddess of love very happy. What made her even less happy was that people had decided the king's daughter, a young girl named Psyche, was more beautiful and more deserving of their attention. Psyche hadn't asked for the attention, but Venus didn't take that into account. The love goddess was green with envy. She called upon her son, the god of love Cupid, to make Psyche fall in love with a monster. Cupid went down to do as he was told, but he fell in love with a fantastically attractive girl. Instead of arranging for her to fall for a hideous monster, he made sure she fell for him. Meanwhile, Psyche's father became concerned that people had begun to worship his daughter. She was so revered that no suitors would dare ask for her hand in marriage. The king went to an oracle in Miletus, but heard that his daughter must be left in the mountain, where an evil being would take her as his wife. This didn't sound too great, but an oracle is an oracle and must be obeyed. The king and Psyche's two sisters sorrowfully left her on a high, rocky hill, and she bravely waited for her demonic match. Nobody turned up, though, until the god of the west wind took her and spirited her off to her husband's new home. Poor Psyche was expecting to end up in a dank cave, and was pleasantly surprised to find herself in a palace. Still, being married to a monster wasn't going to be too much fun, even in a nice palace. She was waited on by invisible servants and served the best food she had ever tasted. In the evening, she was shown to a room where she awaited her husband with some considerable trepidation. He arrived during the night when the room was in total darkness. He told her, in no uncertain terms, that she must never look at him in the light. The same thing happened every night. Psyche's husband was considerate and kind and had left by the morning. Psyche was glad that even though she was married to a monster, he seemed to be a nice friendly monster. After a few nights, Psyche became pregnant. Her husband told her it was now even more important that she didn't see him. If she looked at him, their child would be mortal. If she didn't, then it would be immortal. He told her she could never see her family again, and wouldn't change his mind, even when Psyche told him how much she missed her sisters. Over time, she begged and begged, and finally he gave in. Her two sisters were spirited to the palace by the west wind. When they arrived, they were amazed by the luxury in which Psyche was living, and were very jealous. The sisters plotted. They decided to ruin what they saw as Psyche's good fortune. They also thought that if Psyche's husband threw her out, then they might have a chance to take her place. On their second visit, they told Psyche that she should try to identify her husband, because it was said that he was a monster or a demon. Why else would he not want her to see him? Psyche, who was having a few misgivings anyway, decided to do it. She fetched an oil lamp and hid it. That night, trembling, she held the oil lamp in one hand and a knife ready to plunge into her husband's heart in the other. But what she saw in the light was not a horrifying creature from the depths of hell. Her husband was a beautiful young man with golden wings. At the sight of him, she forgot she was holding the oil lamp in her hand and spilled a drop of hot oil onto his shoulder. Her husband, who was of course Cupid, woke up in pain and saw that his wife had betrayed him. The love god left Psyche. 
he returned to his mother in Olympus. Psyche was distraught that she had lost her husband. Upon hearing that Psyche's husband was a god and he had deserted her, the two selfish sisters each hoped that he would take her as his wife instead. Their plotting and treachery was not rewarded. Both sisters climbed the hill from which the west wind had whisked them to the palace. Both leapt off, believing they would again be carried to Cupid's home. They were very wrong. No west wind came, and the sisters fell to their deaths. Psyche blamed herself. She prayed to Juno and Ceres. Venus, though, hated her. The goddess of love seemed to be the goddess of bearing a grudge, too. This girl had turned the heads of the people who should have worshipped her. She had taken Venus's son and become pregnant with his child. Then she had broken her promise not to look at him and burned him with oil. This was a grudge well worth bearing, and Venus bore it enthusiastically. The goddess of love sent Psyche a series of seemingly impossible tasks. First, she had to sort a room full of different grains by nightfall. A colony of ants helped Psyche sort the various grains into neat piles, and so she succeeded. Next, she had to take wool from a flock of deadly sheep that could kill any man or woman. Psyche was advised she should gather the wool that clung to the bushes, instead of waking the sheep from their afternoon sleep, and so she succeeded again. The next task was even more challenging. Psyche had to fetch the deadly water from the river Styx. Surely this was too much. Surely this time she would be killed. But no, an eagle of Jupiter came to her aid. Taking a jar from Psyche, the eagle flew and filled it with the gloomy water from the river of the underworld. Venus was livid. She demanded that for her last task, Psyche fetch the makeup box from Prosperina, the goddess of the underworld. No mortal could hope to enter the world of the dead and return. Many had tried, and very, very few had succeeded. Psyche wanted to end her life now, since there was no hope of her returning or winning Cupid back. She would have leapt off a high tower, but the building spoke, giving her instruction of how to succeed in this quest and return safely. The tower warned her not to open the box containing Prosperina's ointment. Psyche's courage returned, and she prepared for her trip. He did everything right. She paid Karen, and he ferried her across the sticks. She gave honey cakes to Kerberos. She arrived at the house of the Lord of the Underworld, and refused to sit on the chairs. She only ate bread. She was soon in front of the First Lady of the Underworld. Prosperina smiled at Psyche benevolently, and filled her box with cosmetics. The young girl thanked her, and returned to the surface. Psyche was so close to achieving her aims, that vanity and curiosity got the better of her. She managed to convince herself that Cupid would take her back if she just looked a little better. She had some very expensive-looking makeup with her, and, stupidly and vainly, she opened the box. As soon as she did so, she fell into a deep, deep sleep. She could have been doomed. She should have been doomed. But love can conquer all. Cupid, shoulder completely healed, saw his young wife laid low by Prosperina's dangerous cosmetics. He flew down and woke her up from her magical slumbers. He closed the makeup box and sent Psyche up to his mother, her final task complete. Cupid appealed to Jupiter, asking him to make his wife immortal. The king of the gods agreed, much to Venus's extreme displeasure. Cupid and Psyche didn't give a thought to Venus's wrath, though. They lived together happily forever and had a daughter named Volupta. Another beautiful young lady, loved and admired by everyone, 
was a wood nymph named Pomona. She loved the countryside and the trees and the forests of her homeland. She was completely satisfied and content, and never felt the need for the love of another person, or even a god. Many tried to talk to her and declare their passion for her, but she was oblivious to their charms. Nothing would turn her from her beloved forests. One of Pomona's most determined suitors was the god of orchards and of the changing seasons, Vertumnus. Now, one would maybe think that a god of orchards would have enough in common with the lover of countryside and trees to have some chance of winning her over. But no, Pomona was as unreceptive to his charms as to those of any of the others. It didn't matter what poor Vertumnus did, she just ignored him. He disguised himself as a fruit picker and then as a soldier. He took the form of a sailor and of many other people. He took a lot of pleasure in just looking at Pomona and gazing at her beauty, but no matter how hard he tried, he couldn't get any further. Pomona was simply not interested. Eventually, the resourceful god tried another tack. He entered Pomona's garden in the form of an old lady. He sat down beside the nymph and began to speak. "'Look at the fruit,' said the old woman. It is fine and succulent, but you are so much lovelier. Look at that vine attached to the elm tree. Think what would happen if they were not joined. The vine would have nothing to grow upon, and the tree would not have its beautiful decoration. Can't you see the warning and the example of this tree? You have avoided marriage with no wish to be united. I wish that you would change your mind. In fact, I think you should choose that excellent god Vertumnus. You are his first and only love, and you have so much in common. He loves the orchards as you do, and he will be a true partner. Pomona was still unconvinced. Maybe her heart was swayed just a little, though. The old woman, who was really Vertumnus, decided to give it one more go. He changed his tack a little, and told Pomona a story. A man called Iphis was born to a humble family. He loved from afar a noble girl called Anaxaret. He came to her house and declared his love for her. He confessed to her nurse how much he loved her. The nurse went straight to Anaxaret and begged her to give Iphis a chance. Iphis brought presents and wrote letters. He fixed garlands of flowers on her door and he sang songs for her. Anaxaret was not moved. She despised Iphis's lowly birth and she laughed at him. She was cruel to him and soon he had lost all hope. Unable to endure any more pain, he went to her door and spoke his final words. Anaxaret, you have conquered me, and I won't annoy you any more. You can be joyful and triumphant, because I won't be bothering you again. I'm resigned to my fate, and I will die. And die he did. He killed himself without another thought. Anaxaret was shaken to her senses. She held his lifeless body in her arms, and suddenly was overwhelmed with grief. She couldn't be consoled. Later, she watched the funeral procession pass her home, and saw the dead youth once more. Her heart was broken, and she became cold and hard. Slowly, little by little, the poor girl turned to stone. The old woman looked at Pomona and saw that she was moved. You don't want that to happen to you, do you? With that, the old woman was an old woman no more. Before Pomona's eyes, Vertumnus returned to his normal form. This time there was no need to say anything else. He was handsome, and he loved the same things that she did. Pomona, at last, was charmed. The lovely nymph and the god loved each other then and for ever after. So, we have heard two tales with happy endings. Our third, sadly, does not finish so well. 
Picus was an offspring of Saturn, and was both a god and a king. He could take the form of a woodpecker, and had some powers of prophecy. By the time he was twenty, he had become very handsome, and was keen on finding a wife. Fortunately, he had plenty of suitable girls to choose from. All of the wood nymphs loved him, and all of the water nymphs loved him. Picus, though, was faithful and knew his own mind. He was only interested in one of them. He loved a beautiful young nymph named Canans, the daughter of Janus. Canans did not only look lovely, she had one of the most enchanting singing voices. Her melodies transfixed humans and animals alike, and Picus was as attracted to her wonderful music as he was to her. Love blossomed between them, and before long they were a happily married couple. Picus was a hunter, and often went into the woods with his friends to chase wild boar. One day he did just that, and left Canaan singing at their house. He had two spears in his hands and wore a magnificent purple cloak. He was a fine sight, and he caught the attention of someone. Unfortunately, that someone was one of the most dangerous women in mythology. Yes, poor Picus caught the eye of Circe, daughter of the sun. From a concealing thicket she observed the youth with wonder. All the herbs she had gathered dropped from her hands, forgotten to the ground. He, she thought, I must have. Circe conjured her magic. She formed an enchanted wild boar and made it run in front of Picus as he came by. Picus, always ready for the hunt, chased the boar into the forest. Circe brought down black mists until Picus could hardly see in front of him. His friends and his guards had no idea where he was. Circe made her move. Oh, beautiful youth, she purred, be with me. Let the sun be your father-in-law, and stay with me for ever. Picus was indignant. I am a married man. I love somebody else, the daughter of Janus, and I am certainly not going to leave her for you. Oh, dear, no, said Circe menacingly. You shall not leave me, and you shall not return to Canaan's. Circe turned twice to the east and twice to the west, whispering her magical incantations. She touched the young man with her wand. Picus ran away. He was amazed by how fast he could run, and he began to hope he could escape. But Circe was a powerful sorceress. Soon he was no longer running, but flying. Angry at this transformation, and he smashed the new beak he was growing against the trees, damaging them. His new wings merged with his purple cloak, and the piece of gold with which he had it tied changed to golden feathers. Soon a new bird lived in the forest, and nothing remained of Picus except his name. Picus's attendants and friends searched high and low for their master, but he was not to be found. What they did find, though, was Circe. They put two and two together and blamed her for Picus's disappearance. She was very angry that she had not got what she wanted and had no intention of putting up with any rubbish from mere mortals. Without a second thought, she turned all of the hunting party into various wild beasts. Canans waited and waited for Picus to return, but of course he didn't. She sent her attendants to search the forest, but they came up with nothing. Canans wandered the countryside for six days and six nights before giving up hope. Then she lay down by the shores of the Tiber and cried. As she wept, her life slowly ebbed from her. Her cries became fainter and her flesh and bones faded away. Before long, she had evaporated into thin air. The wind continued to blow and the Tiber continued to flow, but Canans was no more. It's fitting that we leave our tales from Roman mythology on the banks of the Tiber. In the next chapter, 
we will follow the mythical rise of a great city built on the shores of this great river. If you're enjoying the podcast, please visit the website www.mythandhistory.podbean.com If you'd like to contact me with feedback, please do so by email mythandhistory at gmail.com or you can friend me on Facebook at Paul Vincent Myth and History. So, have a great week and I'll speak to you next time.